It can be painful for Sarah to think about the cultural loss she and other Navajo people have experienced. Like a lot of Navajo Latter-day Saint young adults, Sarah doesn't know much of the native language. And her mom, who was part of the church's Indian placement program in the 1970s and 80s, never encouraged Sarah to attend Navajo ceremonies. Sarah is in some ways dislocated from her culture of origin, and this dislocation can create a rift between young people and older generations who fear for the eventual loss of Navajo ways of being. I went to an elementary school that had a high population of Native Americans and Flagstaff, so they offered different services geared towards Native American children. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was being assessed to see how well I spoke English. My parents didn't teach me Navajo because they wanted me to speak without an accent. So I was in this elementary school, and I remember I went with this. She was Navajo herself, and she was assessing my English levels First, she started with, she wanted to know how much Navajo I knew. And I only knew basic words. Mm-hmm. And I remember she scolded me. She was like, she, I remember very well because it hurt. And she was saying, why don't you know this? Where's your mom? Where's your grandpa? Where's your grandma? Mm-hmm. How, how do you not know this? Like, she was annoyed. And I remember thinking, it's not my fault. Like, I didn't, as a baby, go up to my mom and say, don't teach me. Like, I didn't I didn't say, don't take me to ceremonies. Or I didn't tell my grandma, nope, actually, I don't want to be a part of this. Like, mm-hmm. None of them made it their goal to say, sit here, and I'm going to teach you how to weave. None of them said, hey, let's speak our only at family gatherings. We're only going to speak Navajo. It's almost like it was my responsibility to be Navajo, when I didn't really have that guidance to be Navajo. Conversations about traditional culture, cultural loss, and identity can be fraught for Native Americans like Sarah. In the face of overt and stringent efforts to assimilate Native children throughout the 1900s, retaining Native cultural practices has been an uphill battle for many Navajo for over a century. Sarah's ultimate vision is for people to stop blaming each other for the cultural losses and instead teach each other and help one another heal from the historical trauma Native communities have experienced. I guess that's one of, if I were to have a soapbox, that would be one where I'm like, stop punishing Native youth, especially today, for that cultural loss. When it's something that is bigger than us, it's, to me, it's tied to, like I said, this historical trauma, it's, it's tied to all of these things. We should put our energies into saying, These things happen, let's heal, and then let's teach, and like, let's guide. Sarah, now a school psychologist, is doing exactly that as she navigates her complicated identity as a Navajo Latter-day Saint woman. I'm Caroline Klein, and you're listening to This Global Latter-day Life. Sarah's story is one of hundreds we've collected as part of Claremont Graduate University's Oral History Projects. Today, we'll be talking about Sarah's oral history and her experiences and identity as a Native American working to create stability in her life, embrace the get-it-done attitude of her grandmother, and find a space of belonging in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This episode features clips from Sarah's recorded oral life history interview, but to protect her privacy, we have changed her name. Sarah is a pseudonym. Dr. Farina King, a professor of history at Northeastern State University and a member of the Navajo Nation, will join us to discuss Sarah's oral history, provide context, and share some insights based off of her own scholarly work and personal experience. A quick note on terminology. Many Navajo refer to themselves in their culture as Diné rather than Navajo, but Sarah uses the term Navajo throughout her interview. So I follow her lead and use the same term. So welcome, Farina. I'm so grateful that you are able to join us for this podcast today. And I was hoping that we could start out with you introducing yourself and saying a little bit about your background and why this topic is important to you. Thank you. I introduce myself by my Navajo clans. That's how we recognize our family and relations. And that positionality is central to why you know, these kind of conversations are so important to me. 
Belagana dashuche, do sinageni dashanale, akot egoatsa nishle. I am of English American settler descent through my mother, the ne Navajo. We are matrilineal, so we acknowledge our mothers. And I am born for the Towering House and Black Street Woods people clans uh, through my father of Dene, as we call ourselves. And I am a citizen of the Navajo Nation. So I grew up in between Navajo Nation, living there as a small child, was born in Tonanez Dize, Tuba City, Navajo Nation, but mostly went to school and lived in the Washington, D.C. area of Montgomery County, Maryland, where my dad worked for Indian Health Service for many years. And my father converted and joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as well as my mother. And they met at Brigham Young University, and they raised our family with the church in our lives as a very important part of our lives. So I am always asking about the Latter-day Saint experiences and the relations between the church and Navajo Nation. I'm just I'm thrilled you're here to discuss this issue of Navajo Latter-day Saint identity and experiences. And it's a topic I am really intrigued by because in my understanding, many Native Americans have this very unique and interesting relationship to the church because they are prominently included in Latter-day Saint cosmology as potential descendants of Lamanites. And Lamanites have been given special, in particular, promises by God that they would blossom as the rose. And of course, at the same time, they've seen a lot of cultural loss. And I think the um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has played an interesting role in affirming their unique identity and destiny, but also playing a role in their assimilation into the dominant white American culture. And so there's a lot of complicated dynamics to discuss. And thank you again for being here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me. Growing up in Arizona, Sarah experienced a transient childhood. Her father, an industrial construction worker, moved from city to city to work and the family followed him. They would often live in Motel 6 for months at a time, switching schools constantly as they moved. When she was about eight, her parents decided their kids needed more stability, so they moved to a small apartment in Flagstaff. We rented and we had this small little apartment, so we really didn't, I never had a house house or anything like that. Um, my parents, they did their best, but they just weren't able to financially. We struggled. I remember that was always an issue growing up with my family. During my my high school sophomore year, we were homeless. We my parents couldn't pay um, the rent. Flagstaff is known to be very expensive, and so we. I remember we lived with relatives for a little bit, and then we just struggled on our own and. Then we lived in Motel 6, and I remember living there for about three, maybe three months. And before that, we were living in my grandmother's little trailer in the right in the middle of nowhere in a reservation, and there was no running water. Financial stress often brings out other familial stress, and Sarah's parents had a rocky relationship. Sarah yearned for more stability in her life. They fought physically and verbally in front of me and my siblings, I seen them abuse each other and say some really awful things to each other. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, will this ever change? Like, will it ever, what's my life going to be like when I get older? Will things ever change for me? Or will it, I just keep living this life where my, I just always felt like unstable, like there was no foundation in my life. My childhood was happy, like there was happy moments next in, but I think I carry a lot of trauma from my childhood um, just because I had to deal with grown-up situations that I don't think children should have to go through. Sarah felt trapped in a cycle of poverty and alcoholism, and she sees this cycle springing from the historical trauma Native Americans experienced as white settlers occupied much of their land, confined them to reservations, and then forced them to send children to boarding schools, which harshly pushed assimilation. I, I know my parents loved us, and I know that they tried their best. And I think that's something that happens on the reservation. 
with all of the historical trauma that happens because I I think that it's something that is like a cycle where because it's something that my mother's mother and my grandmother went through too she was a single mother raising 10 kids on her own and alcoholism is huge Mm -hmm. that's one thing my dad struggled with and it's just I always felt like I was just in that cycle and there was really only people that I could turn to were my siblings Mm -hmm. and they were my only friends At one point, the family moved to Sarah's father's hometown on a reservation in Arizona. And while they were there, Sarah began to go to church more regularly. Sarah's mother and almost all of her mother's nine siblings had participated in the LDS Church's Indian Placement Program, and she brought Sarah and her siblings to church periodically throughout their childhoods. All of my mom's siblings were raised, and they were they did the Indian placement program without the LDS Church. So my mom's youngest brother was born was born with Down syndrome, mm-hmm. but the rest, all of them, ten, so I think the nine of them went. Because so once again, my grandmother was a single mother, and at some point, you just I think she just realized I need to do something, or you know I need help. So my mother was raised by a family in Carlsbad, California. The church's Indian placement program can bring out a lot of strong feelings, both positive and negative, among its indigenous participants and their families. While it did give Native American kids opportunities to attend better schools and access more opportunities outside reservations, it also separated them from their communities and cultures for much of the year, sometimes leading to a sense of displacement. Sarah's mother is one of the people who had a positive experience with the program. I think she is one of the few who had a really good experience. Like to this day, they're my grandparents. We go to their house every when we can for Sunday dinners. We were talking to her last week. We talked to her on the phone. My grandparents who raised my mom, yeah. They um stayed a part of our lives. They my mom calls them mom and dad and they I know, I don't know exactly what happened, but I know that my mom was there from 8 to 18. On the reservation, Sarah and her siblings started going to church regularly. The church was just a double-wide trailer and the congregation tiny, but Sarah had a transformative experience there. We had two incredible branch presidents who just, I feel like they saw that we needed guidance. They saw that we were in need of help and and of love and of teaching, and especially because we weren't getting that from our father. And not to say that he didn't teach us things, but I just never really felt emotionally connected to my dad. But I felt we called them our church dads, like they just loved us and they like went above and beyond to like to say, like I hear you, I see you, and I I'm invested in you and I care about you and. And that's really when changed church for me and became more a personal thing. Even with her years living on a reservation, Sarah always felt a bit disconnected to some Navajo cultural elements. Much of this was because her own mother was uncomfortable with some Native practices and ceremonies, given her Latter-day Saint upbringing. I think my mom really, even though she wasn't active, she really stuck with the teachings of the church. And so we didn't go to ceremonies. We didn't practice the traditional. But my parents, they participated when, when they were young. My great-grandfather was a medicine man on my mother's side. So they, a lot of my cousins and my aunts and my uncles and my mom, they know these ceremonies. They did them when they were younger. But just me and my siblings, we don't We didn't ever participate, but we knew that that's what happened. And my mom would explain certain things to us, but we just had this underlying understanding that we wouldn't participate. Sarah views this cultural loss with some regret, but her belief in the Book of Mormon has given her another source of ancestral culture, which she treasures. So this is my personal opinion, and I I think this is what makes me different from other Navajo people. The way that I think about it is, yes, it is sad. It is sad that it's a loss. I don't speak my native language. I'm not tied to the culture that way. But from the way that I I feel, the Book of Mormon is my true culture. The Book of Mormon contains who I really am. And it tells of Jesus Christ and his interactions with the people who were here, who were indigenous to this land. And to me, that's the true history. And 
I hold on to that. And I have a very strong connection to the Book of Mormon because of that. And I know that my ultimate culture, if I have one or if I have an ultimate identity, is I'm a daughter of God. And he will make it eight. And it's not my fault that I don't know these things. Another important influence in Sarah's life was her Navajo grandmother, who encouraged Sarah to take charge of her life and make it what it needed to be. She always used to say, I always remember, it was just do for yourself, work for yourself. You shouldn't have to wait till someone to step in for you. The women in my family are very, they will make it happen and you can't tell them no. And I think that's something that is part of, one, it's part of my personality. And I think it's also something that was taught to me was that if you want your life to go a certain way, it's your responsibility to do it. And I remember just thinking in middle school and high school when I was thinking, like, is my life going to be like this all the time? I just remember thinking, well, the only person who is going to change it is you. The only person who can make a difference in it is you. And so I decided when I started high school, at the end of my middle school year, starting high school, that if I was going to make it, I would have to do it on my own. And that meant getting good grades. That meant sacrificing. That meant basically... When I was like 14, I decided that I was going to just go for it. Sarah went to a boarding high school and worked hard, eventually earning a full-ride scholarship to a university in Massachusetts, serving a mission, and finishing up her degree in school psychology at BYU. I just was Mm. thinking I want to pay it forward. Like, I was that kid who was struggling in school. I didn't show it. Like, I always got good grades. I didn't act out. But at home, I was in my innermost parts of myself. I was in trauma like I was in chaos something was always happening mm-hmm. so I thought I, the people that I remember from school were the ones who who really just cared about me who helped me I didn't remember that, that they taught me math or whatever mm-hmm. so when I was picking a career I wanted to do something along that similar lines so I chose to be a school psychologist while Sarah's career is going well she is currently navigating the challenge of finding a good person to marry she's 28 and interested in settling down But most white Latter-day Saint men, she's found, can't quite understand her background or the complicated identity she inhabits. Dating is super hard and trying to to find somebody to marry because I feel like, and maybe this is just me in my head, but I feel like a lot of times my family isn't, you know, put together. Like my parents are, to this day, like they're still the way that they are when we were younger and it's hard. And my parents, my parents live in a house that doesn't have running water and they are Navajo and they speak a different language. Like they speak their native languages. And I grew up and I had this rocky childhood and all of these different things. And I haven't found somebody who I feel like is willing to take me as I am or who is willing to work with me with my background. Single Native American Latter-day Saint men are few and far between. And besides that, her childhood has left her wary of men from her tribal community. I didn't really ever had one of those experiences where I felt fulfilled by a male relationship with another Native American man, including my own grandparent, my own grandfather, my biological grandfathers and my father. Like, I never really had that. So from like a young age, when I was like 13, 14, I was like, no, thank you. I don't want that. Like, don't, I don't want to date Native Americans. And I'm like that to this day. While trying to date and find someone to marry has brought to light some of the difficulties and complicated dynamics of her Latter-day Saint Navajo identity, she has recently found some solace in attending the Franklin Second Ward in Provo, a Native American ward, where she is surrounded by others who have also walked this complex path. And I think now at this time I was ready to be a part of this ward because it's, I think it's really good because you are among people who are shifting through that cultural identity, who are Native American. It's really just refreshing to be worshiping with other people who have had similar experiences that you have and, and who understand that shift between those two worlds that you go through Mm -hmm. and, and so it's really cool. My sister today, we went to church and she just said, I never had a Native American bishop. Mm-hmm. And she, I remember she, yeah, she said that to me this morning. She's like, but it's really cool. It's so cool to have someone who looks like you yeah. helping you. Mm-hmm. And so it's really nice. As Sarah sets out with determination to make her life what she wants it to be, 
she often thinks back to the wisdom of her grandmother. Navajo culture is their matriarchs, you know, the women are in charge. The lineage and everything is through the woman. So I was never told, you're a girl, you can't. Or I was, you know, I wasn't singled out or opportunities were never given to me just because I was a girl. I remember grandma was always like, don't ever cry over a man. Don't ever, like, you you will make it on your own. So I never had that. So I think as a Navajo woman, I was empowered from a young age to say, you know, you can. So I found Sarah's story of navigating her various worlds and her identity as a Latter-day Saint Navajo woman very poignant. And I wanted to ask you, Farina, what jumped out at you in Sarah's oral history? Is there a particular anecdote that struck you or resonated with you and your experience or your scholarship in some way? I think so much of it was so powerful and it's been on my mind a lot lately because I actually am working on a full manuscript about Diné Latter-day Saint experiences in the 20th century. And Sarah would have been uh, another great person to talk to. And and this would be a great source to refer to in that book, because a lot of common themes about the impacts of these different Latter-day Saint programs, like the Indian Student Placement Program, and we're seeing through Sarah's narrative, her story, how that is intergenerational, right? There was, if anything, the focus that there is at all, it's on the placement students, or there's still a lot of need to even look into that because I think there's a lot of erasure and just forgetting about these experiences as well and how to talk about them. And then with that, one of the first featured parts of her oral history, there's the mention of where she's facing, you know, her Dene teacher who is upset at her because she doesn't know as much about Dene culture and teachings And she's thinking, why are you blaming me for this? You know, why, why am I being punished for this and mistreated that way? And I have felt that way too. And I think that's what Sarah's articulating in this oral history is there's some youth, the way that they are being disconnected. I know you said earlier, you call it cultural loss, and that's a term that's being used, but I think there's also an important approach and way of thinking about it is detachment, that there have been efforts of detaching, whether people more consciously do that or not. You know, I think in terms of the church missionaries or church leaders or different people, they thought they were bringing the truth and they do think they're bringing the truth and sharing that and helping Native Americans, including Dene, to better know themselves, know their identity, who they are as a child of God, of a heavenly father and mother. And they see that as benevolent and helping them. But then how does that happen on the ground? You know, how, how then do they treat the origin stories or the way to navigate, as you said, and I'm glad you said it, various worlds, right? It's not just the binary of this is a white world, this is a native or Dene world to be specific, but there's a lot of intricacies within that. So for me, that hit me very personally too, because I've had people get really upset and the judgments they hold against me when they find out I was raised in the church. And I say, I can't change my past. I can't change what my parents decided to do or change these structures that we were born into. Even the fact that why did the families, some of them voluntarily and willingly sign up to send their children into programs like placement or why do they join the church and the church really started to spread in Navajo Nation because of the support of Dene converts who got involved and wanted that. And they made that choice. Why did they do that? You know, why, why was there a need, a felt need of placement that in practice was very disconnecting for Dene people, pipelining them away from their own communities and families There was a felt need of that. And you have to step back and see broader context, which Sarah's oral history, it opens us up to looking into that, you know, and also the feelings of those in the middle of it, that we are born into this world affected by legacies and impacts of settler colonialism, violence, tensions. I mean, she even shares 
the hardships with her family, alcoholism being issues that people will stereotype, you know, about Native Americans more on a broader general sense. And she is a Native woman who goes to this Native American congregation of the church, which there are very few of those remaining. I mean, we'll talk later, I'm sure, about these other aspects. But I think people need to pause and what Sarah's oral history does is it helps people to pause and think, how do we understand, you know, these different experiences and not point fingers, not at least, especially at the people who are powerless to some of these dynamics that they got thrown into and they're having to navigate that world. You know, that's what I mean. Certainly there is accountability and these different dynamics at play, but how do we better understand these fuller um, contexts and, and the personal stories of it? Oh, yes. And I love what you said there about not pointing fingers, because that's exactly what Sarah said in her oral history is it's time to stop blaming one another and start teaching and guiding one another and helping each other along. So I think that really resonates with her view. And I also really liked the phrase you just gave of detachment. Like you mentioned, I use the term cultural loss in the narration, as does Sarah. But I love this word detachment because I think it also connotes that there could be a reattachment at some point, that these bridges can be built again, these connections can be rebuilt perhaps at least. There's a potential for that. And you did just touch on this to some degree, but that issue of Indian placement program is such an important one in the LDS Diné or Navajo story. And I didn't put this in the narration, but Sarah and her oral history does talk a little bit more about her mom's experience in the Indian placement program. And it was a wonderful, for her, she had a wonderful experience with this great family in California. But she does talk about how her mom, nevertheless, did struggle with identity and feeling dislocated a bit from her root cultural elements. While at the same time, it opened up possibilities for her to go to college. She went to BYU for a couple of years. Um, eventually, I think the identity issues really kind of crashed down on Sarah's mom and her life kind of went in a different direction after that. But you can kind of see just in that little tiny anecdote of her mom, how complicated the Indian placement program, what a complicated role it played in her life. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit more if you could reflect on the church's Indian placement program, the pros and the cons, and maybe any anecdotes or insights you might have from your family or people you know. Again, there's so many different perspectives and experiences about this. You can't just have a broad brushstroke, whitewashing everything or just like generalizing everything it takes getting into these intricacies of it. Right now, you know, there's been lawsuits about the harassment, the sexual abuse, real dark aspects of the placement program. Then you hear, you know, stories like Sarah shares that this is still a part of her family. It was extending kinship, building ties and bridges between different people. But then through that, because there was, as I say, yes, it was that detachment. It was quite intentional, you know, an idea again that aligned with series and onslaughts of, and, and it's tied, you know, to settler colonial dynamics of a hegemonic force, whether that's the United States or, you know, a group within the church that see themselves as white and the Euro-American pure breed, whatever their mindset is of that group, whatever, you know, group they think, they think that they are superior. You know, they think that this is the way to be. And they even frame that it is benevolent to pressure other peoples to assimilate to them, that that's their only way to survival. When you unpack it, it's about power dynamics of upholding another people's culture, uh, their ways of being and navigating the world over another. You know, and this is what we're facing today is this is the importance of it, of delving into these very complicated entanglements of different peoples and stop dichotomizing, stop developing binaries of simply good and bad, you know, because it's a lot more complicated than that reality is. And that's what I think about with, with the placement program, because I have a cousin, for example, who went on it and he becomes very defensive of being told, he says, I was not brainwashed. 
you know, stop just framing me as a victim. And people compare um, placement program actually to federal Indian boarding school initiatives and, and policies that were spearheaded, especially from Richard Henry Pratt, the infamous quote, kill the Indian in them, save the man. They were very different kinds of programs and different dynamics, but there are common themes and undertones that to uplift, like this idea that that Native peoples had to be uplifted and this would be a way they could do it. It was seen as a strategy. And I see this in a lot of other aspects of Native American history, actually, in my experience. So, so they saw that as an uplift. And to me, that's awful that, that they needed, they, they felt that way, you know, that there was a need of, well, you need to save yourselves, get out of these ruts that you're in without really recognizing the root of the issues. You know, these are all these kind of band-aid solutions that actually cause more issues down the road in different ways where it's hard for me to say we can look back and we can talk in retrospect. But when you're in the thick of it and so much is going on, I can't imagine the kind of decisions that families and communities had to make. Because in my studies, I recently wrote about the Intermountain Indian Boarding School, for example, and looking into that, after World War II, Navajo Nation was in desperation. There were families starving and the hardships that they were facing. So you have to stop and and realize what kind of choices did families have? And when the placement program was seen as a hand reaching out to pull people out, and that's what Sarah got at, you know, what I hear other oral histories get at, and that these were agents of themselves, you know, Native families and Dene, they had to make decisions for themselves and, and what they thought was the best way to move forward in such very dire and difficult situations that I can't even imagine. But these are what my ancestors had to go through. And when you trace it back, what I'm doing, we're in COVID-19 pandemic, right? And Navajo Nation was one of the hardest hit communities in the world. And why was that? There's a history that it's all interconnected. Long walk, my ancestors were forced and, and waters poisoned and forced out on a death march to a concentration camp where everything, everything's taken. You don't just bounce back up from that. And especially when you keep being kicked down. And your land is taken and all these controls and limits on you. I mean, even today, Navajo Nation is fighting for sovereignty of their education and fighting to provide water and electricity, basic human needs. Um, So placement, whatever you think about it, yes, we need to, you know, be critical and recognize the pain, the hardship in it. But how do, what do we do now and how to navigate these intergenerational impacts. Sarah's story is so important in starting that conversation, like you said, of now, what do we learn? What do we do now? It's not that you forget the past. You have to understand it to know where you're headed. Thank you for sharing your thoughts about this and for providing that context about what an incredibly difficult position so many Navajo people were in in the 1970s and 80s. And actually, that really resonates with what Sarah said about her grandmother, who was a single mom, 10 children, one with Down syndrome, and she had to survive. And she felt like her kid's best chance was to go into the LDS placement program. And I love what you said about how we need to examine the roots of why she was put in a position where she had to make that choice. I just really appreciate all that you said there. And now I'm going to go into another difficult and complicated issue for so many Native American Latter-day Saints, which is, and also positive in a lot of ways, which is the identity of so many Native Latter-day Saints as Lamanites. They embrace this idea of having a Lamanite heritage. And Sarah has a very positive attitude towards this. She loves the fact that she identifies as Lamanite, that she can see this history of her people in the Book of Mormon, and that means a ton to her. Though on the other hand, of course, some people might have some negative reactions to that association, given that the Book of Mormon does depict the dark skin of the Lamanites as a curse in the Book of Mormon. 
And so my question to you, Farina, is what is at stake for Native Americans when discussing their relationship to the Book of Mormon? And what are and can you kind of talk about some of those, I'm guessing, mixed feelings towards the Book of Mormon? Or maybe it's predominantly positive in your experience. What do you think? This aspect is a can of worms because it's so <laughs> it is so complicated as everything is. But I think the place that I wanted to begin is to let you know, I am thinking about this. It's not something you can answer in one setting. So I'm going to do the best to let you know the directions that I'm taking is it's important. It's often the white elephant in the, um, <laughs> the white elephant in the room. It's the elephant in the room. It's that, you know, for Latter-day Saints, it's been especially sensitive because there was once upon a time and not even just once upon a time, it was the founding of the church, <laughs> very much tied to the foundations of the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, and Joseph Smith Jr., who outrightly declared that Native Americans are descendants of Lamanites. And then all of a sudden, you know, with different controversies about DNA not showing the, the ties or or different critiques, aspects, whatever it is, there was a drawback and a minimizing of saying, of making those claims, changes even on the title page of the Book of Mormon, the wording. And yet people continue, like Sarah, and especially some active Native American Latter-day Saints, have had actually a resurgence of identifying as Lamanites, and that they don't forget those words of the prophets, and they're talking back. You know, I think a lot of the debates about Lamanite identity have actually been dominated in media and whatnot with publications by non-Natives having these arguments, or those who weren't brought up with Native culture and communities. And so a part of my work is how do we turn to Native communities and listen to them? And there's going to be a wide range, a spectrum again, diversity of some who see and call out the detriment, the harm of that, how that Lamanite has been appropriated and it's used in different ways. It is used as a weapon, actually, you know, against Native peoples in some ways when there are, say, for example, white Latter-day Saints saying, you're cursed. This is what the scripture says. This is how we interpret it. And we are the ones, you know, curing you of this curse and whatever and the shaming. But then there's others who interpret those same scriptures as that darkness is not actually skin tone, but it is your aura or that that the Lamanites, guess what? They're the ones who survived. It was the Nephites who often white Americans have interpreted as the heroes of the story. They're the ones who go extinct, right? They're the ones who do not persevere. It's Lamanites who do. So there's also others interpreting and being very proud of being Lamanites, that they were um, the underdogs in a way and pr made promises, special promises by the Lord in the Book of Mormon, in the scripture. So that's very foundational. And it was for my father, I would say, in, in my conversations with him. And he never felt ashamed of his indigeneity because of the scriptures. Actually, it made him prouder, empowered. And that's what I saw. Yet I certainly see and hear the stories of how others were shamed and the things that people said to them and how it was appropriated. So I think it's always important to understand these different contexts, usage, and very, very important to me is how do we hear and listen to more people with deep ties and connections to Native American communities. They are from those communities and their perspectives about it. So I actually am launching a symposium about indigenous perspectives on the meaning of Lamanite. And some say that's opening Pandora's box because there's some who are very vocal about not identifying as Lamanite. That is not their identity. They identify as Dene or specific people, and that's who they are. And then there's others who do identify as Lamanite, and that's central to how they see and understand themselves. Or maybe they do in word, but it's more complicated, and they have these different facets to their identity. 
Oh, I'm so glad you're putting together this project, this conference and project that's going to explore this question because it is so interesting. One thing I do want to also jump into quickly is the Franklin Second Ward, which and this brings up a bigger issue for me, which is the value of ethnic cultural wards um, like this Franklin Second Ward, which is known as the Native American Ward in Provo, Utah. And I liked Sarah's reflections on this. She said that she actually initially like kind of resisted going, but then a while ago she decided to go and, and her sisters are there too. And so they can worship together, even though they live in different places. And she talks about how there's a power in going to a ward where the leader looks like you. Though at the same time, I realized some people might say, why are we separating them out? Like, let's include them, you know? And so I just wanted you, if you have any thoughts about the Franklin Second Ward and also maybe this larger issue of ethnic and language and cultural wards. Oh, yeah, definitely. A little background is that I have attended the Franklin Second Ward. So I went there for at least a year when I was in between different graduate programs and I took my family there when I was living in Provo. And to be honest, if I ever lived in Provo or that area, I would want to go. That's It's like another home to me. And it's interesting because I certainly, in this book I'm writing, this is something I address is there are even my own friends, people who are like family to me. They are very close to me. Dene Latter-day Saints, friends of mine who have said, I don't want to go to that ward. It's like self-segregating. We need to go out. And so other, you know, other Latter-day Saints can meet Native Americans and not hide to ourselves. So I understand that, you know, you can't really say that's everyone's perspective because people are all coming from different backgrounds and experiences and where they see they can do the most service or what they need, you know, or, or what, what that aspect is. But Franklin Second Ward, it does originate from a time when there were several Native American congregations in the Provo area because actually placement, an impact of it was that students were being pipelined to BYU, Brigham Young University in particular. So for better, for worse, you even mentioned that, right? The opportunities of, of connecting to higher education. So BYU had one of the largest Native American student populations in the country when Native higher ed programs were actually really developing at that time of red power, American Indian movement. And they had, you know, over twice, almost five times more what BYU now has today in terms of how many Native American students there were and the programs that they developed. They had research centers. They had all these different aspects. Well, aside to that, like an aspect of that is that there was a heavy emphasis on avoiding interracial marriage and even church leaders discouraging interracial dating and marriage. And they would say, you're more successful if you know people of your same culture and you marry. And so in that origin of these, you know, Native American congregations, that's not all positive, right? But at the same time, for Native students to build community and have these congregations, and then a number of them stuck around in Provo, it started to build a native community there. And this happens with movements and diasporas of people that we see all over the world is they're moving and they want to be able to sustain family and cultural ties where they have these enclaves and that's, they're so essential for their identity, but others may not want to, you know, they want the choice. They don't want to have to be forced to, or see it as, you know, you have to be segregated or, or X, Y, Z. But I, what I see powerful in terms of the Franklin second story is there was a community that they willingly and wanted to be a native American congregation for that cultural emphasis in the ward and in that ward family. And a lot of them were from communities where they lived away from their reservations, away from their ancestral homelands. And that was the family they made. So while, you know, a lot of those congregations that were segregating, you know, natives were closing down 
And there was um, more the direction and emphasis on geographic based congregations. Franklin's second ward was one that survived those closures and fought to remain open because there's the community that connected and not only Native Americans, but Native Hawaiians who connected other peoples who saw ties as indigenous Latter-day Saints have gone to that community. And for me, why I am drawn to it is when I've gone to congregations in Provo, I feel, to be honest, some abrasion, like uh, it's very um, aversive in some congregations. Like I'm like, I'm a fish out of water, even if we're all learning the same gospel principles and I try to share with people and educate them. I'm an educator all the time. I'm talking to people all the time about very difficult topics and it's exhausting. You wear down and you just want to be with people who get it in those moments that are very personal and difficult. So that's like what I'm walking all the time. And it's like fresh air and being able to swim in the water that you can breathe for a minute and not be holding your breath, walking on eggshells and glass all the time. And so that's what I think is really powerful about why Franklin Second Ward exists. I hope there's a future where I don't have to feel like I'm having to educate people all the time and being questioned all the time or or even I'm white passing, you know, imagining how it's like to not be white passing and a standout, how aversive that is. You know, I can blend in if I shut up and don't say I'm Native American and I recognize that white privilege, but I do identify as Native. And I tell people that because I see how even well-intended, good-hearted people, they were immersed in perpetuating They have been acculturated, indoctrinated, even from infancy, from childhood, of perpetuating violence of settler colonialism, even if they're conscious of it or not. And what I mean by that is just even the ignorance they have about Native issues of they live, you know, with access to electricity and water, especially in regions like Utah, where there's drought, there's a struggle to be sure that there's enough water. And some people are going to the golf courses or building those, or they're sucking water to have that. Well, there's communities that my own, you know, the communities in that same region who don't have water to wash their hands during a pandemic where that's your, your way to survival. And they don't even get that. They don't understand how they can connect and support that kind of infrastructure to just even be sure that, you know, children and lives innocent lives can continue. They don't see how they're a part of that fabric of life. And that's a violence in that ignorance, you know, that they're not aware of. And they say things that they don't understand is so abrasive and violent. You know, they don't even know. And it's so exhausting and overwhelming to open people's eyes like that and how they can get defensive and be so sensitive of it because it's hard. You don't, you're not to blame. You're not, you know, it's not your fault is what folks often say, even my own students or community here in Tahlequah, Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, I hear people say, you're right. It's not your fault that we're born into this world, that maybe you, a person was born into privilege, but we're responsible now for what we do today and what happens forward. And some people don't want to be responsible because it takes work. It takes effort. It could take to them what they think giving up some of their privilege that they don't want to, it's power and become hoarding that or like thinking it's about a pie and they'll have less or whatever, rather than seeing as the church teaches, we are all God's children, love one another. That's the greatest commandment, the golden rule. What's real gold? Love and charity. If you go want to go to heaven, you're not taking all whatever big possessions or showing you have the biggest car or whatever power you had. You're showing if you were a true disciple of Christ that you truly, truly love someone as much as you even love yourself. And I believe that. Those are 
beautiful and powerful reflections. And I think this all does go back to where this discussion just started, which was the Franklin Second Ward and the power of the Franklin Second Ward. And and the way, like you said, that it, it can be such a refuge for people to not have to walk on eggshells and to be themselves and to not worry all the time. And so I I really appreciate you articulating the power of that ward and what it can mean for people and the way it can strengthen people. Farina, thank you so much for this incredible discussion. I Your insights are invaluable, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate the passion you bring to this and the emotion and the connection and the research. You've just been a, a terrific discussion partner. Thank you. Thank you for including me and doing all this important work. And those like Sarah who shared their stories, those are really what carry us. And I'm so thankful to be introduced to this. One final word of thanks to Shiloh Logan for the many hours he put into editing this episode. A Claremont Graduate University Mormon Studies podcast. Hi, this is Caroline Klein, host of This Global Latter-day Life. If you're enjoying the kind of stories you're hearing from Latter-day Saint women around the world on this show, you'll also enjoy my new book. It's called Mormon Women at the Crossroads, and it's filled with compelling stories like the ones you've been hearing on This Global Latter-day Life. Order a copy at the University of Illinois Press website, on Amazon.com, or from your favorite local book retailer. Mormon Women at the Crossroads by Caroline Klein. This Global Latter-day Life is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. This is a great podcast. I'll let him introduce it. I'm going to take a risk in this ad by saying the word holiness right here in the very first sentence. That's risky because the word can trigger all kinds of positive or negative feelings. I mean, sometimes I'm afraid to call something holy because it makes things feel sort of unrelatable or or like disconnected from everyday life. And really, I mean, that's too bad because the word's actually related to wholeness and helpfulness, which suggests that maybe we can learn to find holiness in places we never really thought to look before. I'm talking about holiness like a fire. It can warm, but it can also burn. You might get smoke in your eyes, but the flickering flames are also really beautiful. If this kind of holiness sounds appealing, you should check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's a podcast featuring writers, artists, and activists who can help expand your concept of holiness to include the gritty, earthy stuff of everyday life. Come fan the flames of your curiosity at Fireside with Blair Hodges, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Available at firesidepod.org and wherever you get your podcasts.